aspects of life such as um, nature, um, parenting, the virtues of love and forgiveness and gratitude, um, music and the arts, these aspects of life can be imbued with the sacred qualities of transcendence and ultimacy and boundlessness, and they can become vehicles for experiencing something, a deeper dimension of life. Hello there, and welcome. I'm John Price, the host of The Sacred Speaks. Thanks for stopping in. And if you're new to the podcast, what I do is, I guess, selfishly bring in some music, the intro pieces, and what I what I tend to do, or what I've, what's evolved, is that I, I play a little intro piece, and then I play a song in the intro, uh, this introduction, and then I play a song at the end of bands that have kind of been interwoven throughout my life, certainly, but influences in, in music. I think it, it's selfish because I because I really enjoy listening to music, and this gives me a really good excuse to listen to the entire catalog of all these bands, so I'll explain some of that in a bit, but you'll hear a song after... Uh, a few minutes and then you'll hear a song at the end of the conversation. Today's participant, Dr. Kenton Pargament, is, uh, I have an interesting narrative here associated with, with Ken. He, I taught a class at University of St. Thomas in Houston this past summer and the book the, the previous professor had been teaching from it's this book called Spiritually Integrated Psychotherapy. It was a class I was teaching for master's level therapists, soon to be therapists. This was their last class. And now they've all gone off to begin licensure. And uh, Dr. Pargament's book uh, was handed to me as something that... Um, the university had been teaching from for a, a while, or that particular professor had been teaching from. And so a serendipitous moment, I, I got into the book and really liked it. I, I, and I immediately I reached out to him and asked him to sit for a conversation. And we couldn't do it then, but we ended up uh, reserving the time months later. So the class was in June. And then... Uh, I think we yeah we just did it a couple of weeks ago here in it was in September but I'm releasing this in uh, in October. So the it's hard not to think about layers of experience right now 
given the nature of what's going on in our political world. And I won't go too much into this, but what I will say is that being a psychotherapist is is fascinating for a number of reasons. Again, which I won't go into, except for one. The conversations that I have with people every day are private and confidential. And it seems that setting the situation up in such a way that we emphasize confidentiality and trust and that we communicate that both people have a shared value in that moment, which is to express. One person is expressing something genuine and the other is listening. And the psychotherapist in the room, their value in that moment is to be attentive and connected and really present with another person. And interesting things happen when you, when you give somebody, when you connect with somebody with that level of presence, you're communicating that your, your value, your time and your energy and your attention is completely present and witnessing the unfolding of somebody's experience and I think the word unfolding is a good word because I, I've not seen it work any other way. We, It takes time to get to the place where we're willing to share more private aspects of our lives. And we all have a private life. We all have things that we would rather not share with, with other people and if you're the person thinking that you don't have a private life, then I <laughs> I suggest you really tune in to yourself. We, we all do. And as a therapist, I think one thing that's been, that's important to talk about is that I currently am listening to stories from people's history that they, both in my professional life and my personal life, that they, two things, had either never shared with anybody else or they didn't deem it worthy to talk about or felt like it wasn't a big deal or essentially they were tapped into this kind of societal way of being that says uh, that wants to deny somebody's experience or minimize it in some way. But when it comes to sexual abuse and um, well, when it comes to sexual abuse or violating sexual boundaries, what I can say as a therapist is that we've not done a very good job as a culture of communicating the need for people to be, to even recognize that these boundary violations have happened. And because we haven't done a good job of it, what I what occurs to me is that our reality is very skewed. When we hear a statistic like one in three women and one in six men have been sexually abused, if that's not something that's in your experience, then 
what just naturally happens is people tend to not recognize that as a reality because what we don't do is talk about those private things. So when it's not in your experience and you're not talking to anybody about their experience, that influences your worldview and it influences the decisions you make, the judgments you have, the beliefs that you hold on to about how the world works and how, how people function and interact with others. So I won't go into much more, but I, I, I do think that it's f- important right now to consider that there are many experiences and events in this world that are not only beyond each of our individual experiences, but that because of the nature of, 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 of the human being and the importance of belonging, we tend to self-select what, is, um, what can be brought out into the view of others. And because that's a fact of how we behave, that fact influences how people construct their worldview. So I urge you to have conversations that may seem difficult with people that you care about, with people that are close to you, and do so in a way where you are communicating the value not of your own anxieties and fears and self-protection, but you're communicating the value of attentiveness and the intentionality of really wanting to connect and discover hidden parts of your partner or your children or your friends, the people in your life that you care about. So there's a, there's a bridge here um, to spirituality because there's a, the spirituality is another k- kind of experience where people tend not to share what their real their really genuine experience is so you know i i hear a number of people that come into my office who who don't understand what we would consider to be spiritual experiences so I, I want to share in, in beginning this uh, this conversation today. I want to share a little bit about Dr. Pargament because what he works what he works with is religious coping, and seeing how an individual's spiritual or religious experience informs how they make sense of trauma and crisis and struggle and uh, and the like. And what he's found is that when people have a, a kind of orientation that honors and appreciates the sacred, that they tend to be able to cope more effectively with life events. So there's, and that's not that's not make, making a, ser- a theological assertion. What it's saying is that when we are in line with that spiritual dimension of our 
biological, psychological, social, and spiritual experience, that something happens in us. It almost seems to, um, to, to affirm the, the view. Now, I'm not getting into right and wrong views. All I'm saying is that one, one very interesting thing about Dr. Pargament's work is that you know, this biological, psychological, social, and transcendental um, model of, of the human being. And what, what we tend to do a lot today is we tend to negate the need to have a spiritual life to connect with mystery because we're in a very matter-oriented culture um, that 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 privileges the sensory experience you know what i can see taste hear feel touch and so on and those things that i can't do that with i i, I don't i don't believe or i don't kind of fold into my experience so you can see how this would certainly affect the, the, the dialogue between people when, for example, something like a sexual assault is not in somebody's experience and it makes them on some level feel uncomfortable and they've never taken the time to talk to people about their experience. Okay. So Ken and I had an amazing conversation. Uh, it was, it was fun because he, I feel sometimes that a lot of these conversations get into the theoretical and the abstract, but Ken really studies empirically religion and the religious life and spirituality. And I, I, I just had a lot of fun talking to him about how to define some of these terms. And we'll get into a lot of that. I, I will recommend his book, um, primarily for psychotherapists, but he's got a lot of information, a lot of books out there, a lot of articles too. Spiritually Integrated Psychotherapy is the book that I've read. Um, but if you look him up, check out the uh, the website. I'll have listed all of his links. And uh, and you can check out how to, uh, to order some of his books or what he's up to. I'll read his bio briefly. Dr. Pargament's nationally and internationally known research addresses religious beliefs and health. His current research program addresses how elderly people who struggle with their religious beliefs and hold negative perceptions about their relationship with God and life meaning have an increased risk of death, even after controlling for physical and mental health and demographic characteristics. He also studies the process by which people create perceptions about the sanctity of aspects of their life activities and the beneficial effects of sanctification for individual and interpersonal well-being. A strong emphasis on his work is how individuals and couples sanctify their marriage and how that sanctification is a strong predictor of marital quality and stability. <clears throat> so that with, to that end, uh, he references couples and communication and anybody who's you know, aware of the how their connection and sanctification in their marriage or in their partnership is working. I've recently been recommending John Gottman's intimacy cards. And if you look on John Gottman, um, Google, you know, the Gottman Institute, and they have a set of cards that couples can begin to use to create deeper connections. It's really to help couples imagine 
Um, it's not about uh, just communicating, it's imagining, you know, their, their history together, their shared experiences, but also future. And we tend to, we tend to do that when we bond, we imagine our lives together. Okay, I'll, I'll close that out and I'll, I'll do a little talk on some of the music today and then, uh, and then we'll get started. Uh, the the music today is from the Hundred Inevitables, and these guys are old friends, and I've seen many times. It's a it's a dual day for Toby Pipes, because uh, his his band Modern Nations is the theme music for the podcast. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And the Hundred Inevitables, I don't think they. they may still play together. I think Toby is in so many bands, I can't imagine how he's playing regularly with any one of them. Um, But you can check out The Hundred Inevitables on Facebook. Um, And and I'll I'll play a couple of tunes. I really, um, when, when, when this band came out, I was very excited to see Toby in the front playing on a, on his keyboard. And, um, it's a, they're a great band. So the, the song I want to bring you is, is related to this whole conversation we've been having, and then we'll uh, close out this, this intro piece and, and uh, get started with the interview. So I want to bring you Plain Clothes. It's off an album that I can't find online, but I just happen to have it. And, uh, well, here's the song. And at the end of the episode, I'll play out uh, another song the the first little portion the clip was called give it away give it all away and the the last song is called even better this one is uh, plain clothes
Okay, that's Plain Clothes off the album Stutter that was their debut album in 2000. And uh, the band, the band I, I want to name the guys in the band, Jeff Whittington, Toby Pipes, Nolan Tease, and Taylor Young, all of whom are involved in, in music on this project. Um, Nolan and Toby uh, created Modern Nations. And if you listen to the first five or six episodes of the podcast, I included more of their music, but they, um, their song Clouds is the theme song of the podcast. Taylor Young just released an album, and uh, those th- three guys, Toby, Nolan, and Taylor, have played in uh, with me before in my band, and we spent a lot of time together, <laughs> and so yeah. Taylor just just came out with an album, and I'll be bringing him into the podcast maybe in the next few episodes, but of course, Joel, it seems like I, I, I've probably brought in four or five projects that Toby and Nolan have been involved in. So it's fun to uh, kind of bring Jeff Whittington and his stuff into the work, into the mix. Okay, so the a couple things through the podcast. I did this one at my house, and we were on uh, Zoom. And I have a co-pilot that's a really big pound puppy. He's not a puppy anymore. He's about a 90-pound, big, huge horse. But his his pound dog energy comes out because <laughs> he barks at the slightest smallest sound and uh and and his bark is loud and while he may sound like he's in the room with me he was not I tried to edit out as much as I could but um I couldn't get it all so you'll hear my uh my co-pilot barking throughout the episode um I think the other thing, I get, uh, the podcast, you can check out the website, thesacredspeaks.com. And uh, it's searchable on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But the coolest thing you could do is share it. You can like it on iTunes, but uh, you can share it. I think these conversations, I, I, you know, I guess it's, again, it's selfish. These are conversations I, I, that, that I want to learn from, that I up until a number of years ago, even the recent recent past, I didn't have a lot of the the awareness of these concepts and ideas, and my understanding of religion was pretty myopic. So I'm excited to bring you this. Thanks for joining. If you're new, um, cruise through the content. Uh, if you've been listening for a while, thank you. That's that's really cool. So for now, we'll leave it there. I wish you well, and bring you again. You mind if we just get rolling? Sure, go for it. Thank you for arranging the time. I, I'm from a originally from a music background, and the idea of of calling people and having a conversation with them. These these people who've been influences in your <laughs> in your in your life it, it was not very common in the music industry. So to be able to read somebody's book and then uh, teach from the book and then share a conversation like this to me, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to really get used to uh, yeah. 
to doing that. <laughs> so, Great idea. Are you are you recording this? Can you record it? Or I'm, we're recording right now. Oh, okay, good. So I'm not I'm not doing the video. I'm not recording the video, but I am recording the audio. Oh, good. Okay, so I can take my shirt off or whatever. Yeah, you can you can sc burr, <laughs> you know, scratch yourself. So I uh, I, I want to start kind of one of the ways that I've been starting with people of of course is with um, personal narrative and in your book you shared a bit about that and I do think it's valuable to hear what got you interested in doing what you're doing what you've made your your life about so if you could could you share a little bit about why the research into religion and religion is a kind of a means by which people can learn to cope with their experiences. Um, would you share a little bit about why that happened to you? Sure. Well, when I went into uh, uh, psychology, I thought it would be a good way to help me figure out answers to the big questions that I was struggling with as a young young person. You know, why are we here? Um, how should we live our lives? What do we What do we mean by living the good life? How can we make the world a better place? And I thought psychology would provide a way to learn about uh, some answers to those questions and then help people live more effective lives. Um, I was disappointed though in my graduate training. I went through graduate school in the uh, early 70s when uh, behaviorism was uh, still very popular, as well as psychodynamic thought. And I, I only semi-jokingly say that my first client was a five-pound pigeon um, <laughs> because I, I learned about reinforcement principles working with my pigeon. <laughs> it was very helpful, and there are certainly problems that respond well to behavioral um, theory and strategies. But, yes. you know, in terms of the big questions, my pigeon wasn't very helpful, pretty darn unresponsive to those <laughs> questions. Why are we here? What's the good life? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, but I'm only semi-joking because I just didn't find uh, the psychology of that time grappling with the questions that I was most interested in and thought something was missing. Uh, I started to read more about from philosophy, uh, religion, just looking for other people who shared my interests. And I found that people who wrote about religion, particularly the psychology of religion, they were really interested in some of the questions I was interested in about meaning in life, um, values, morality, how do you help people live a good life? And I got more and more intrigued and I started to go out and talk to people, just interview people informally about the role of religion in their lives. And I, I just got more and more interested in that uh, it was a very gradual process um, not so much in theology which wasn't that exciting for me uh, but more how people talked about the role of faith in their lives when they were facing major life issues crises and hurdles then you could see the power of religion for them for better and worse and that was very uh, important to me. And, and I saw that in the field of psychology, there are few psychologists had really, I think, given credit to the importance of religion in people's lives. So that got me even more intrigued. So I gradually worked my way into, into the field. 
why not theology i'm just well, well theology it it first of all it seemed it was kind of dry to me it's just very highly dry and abstract and it also had to do with um issues that really couldn't be examined empirically and i've always been a skeptical kind of person i need things to be proven to me or, or to be shown to me to be the case and so just beliefs about the nature of god the universe and people that aren't grounded in something a little bit more to my mind substantive than people's opinions um wasn't really that appealing to me and i, I know people the theologians say it's grounded in revelation and grounded in the word of god but I was skeptical enough about that. I just couldn't. I couldn't accept that as a source of knowledge for me. Can t take us into this. You know, I'm imagining somebody's head exploding who hears you say empirically investigating religious phenomena. So, because yeah. you've been doing that a long time, and and that I think is one of the. I don't know, the most compelling and interesting things for me about, you know, why I really wanted to talk to you is that you have had your your hand your your hands in the dirt, you know, digging in the dirt of the religious life. So <laughs> so could you explain that a little bit, the um empirical and religion? Sure. Well, it's important to note that, you know, when you empirically study religion, there's there we're not talking about trying to determine the truths of any religious claims, uh, including the truth of God's existence, the truth of any uh, set of religiously based dogma. Um, psychologists have no Godmatron. We have no machine that will measure God's presence or absence, uh, <laughs> even though, you know, that that's not in our realm of possibility. But what we can do is we can measure the what's been called the footprints left by faith. So we can look at the implications of believing or not believing, the implications of feeling a sense of connection to God for health and well-being. And that's in the realm of psychology. So that's that's what I'm able to do as a psychologist. Like none of the work that we do in the psychology of religion really speaks to the uh, ontological truth or reality of religious claims. Um, there's n there's no proof one way or the other for those claims, but we can speak to the pragmatic oh, value of some of those claims for health and well-being. Mm -hmm. Does that make some sense? Uh, makes a lot of sense. I I, I just think you're a good um, you're a good person to kind of guide us through and help us understand that because you know this gets into some pretty dicey content people people have a lot of very charged feelings and um they tend to fall down on one side or the other of this this kind of argument about religion and uh right so i think that maybe one thing that can we'll get to a lot of the the you know the questions from your book but your your book, Spiritually Integrated Psychotherapy, spends the, the first half really talking about the sacred, what you call the sacred. And I think that's kind of, kind of where I'd like to start is, you know, what is that 
how do you define that and all the related little branches that come off that defining religion um, and then I think that may take us to something that you articulated early in the book that I I really like which is the biological psychological social and spiritual model of the human so could you right. could you define a lot of those kind of key terms from your work Sacred being well, I guess yeah, yeah. The the heart of heart and soul of of this work is the sacred, and it's a a con concept that I found to be really useful because it's inclusive. It it includes not only people's ideas about God, um, divinity, some transcendent reality. That's the core of the sacred for many people, but it also goes beyond that to include other aspects of life, including those that might not seem to be sacred, but they can become sacred when they are seen as either manifestations of God or whether they're seen as holding sacred qualities. What, I'm, what I mean by that is that aspects of life such as um, nature, um, parenting, the virtues of love and forgiveness and gratitude, um, music and the arts, these aspects of life can be imbued with the sacred qualities of transcendence and ultimacy and boundlessness, and they can become vehicles for experiencing something, a deeper dimension of life. So the sacred then includes the traditional ideas of God and the traditional theistic kinds of notions, but it also goes beyond from kind of heaven to earth to say that many aspects of life on earth, and some people would say any aspect of life on earth, can become spiritualized or sanctified um, when it is seen within the context of that um, uh, 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 sacred core or sacred frame of reference. It opens our eyes then the way I talk about sacred, it opens our eyes to the possibility that we can find sacredness in virtually anything. And I, I think that's that's really important. It just it so we're, it opens us to the possibility of both the traditional and non-traditional ways people experience that sense of the other or the holy or the transcendent or the imminent in people's lives. Would you uh, would you share a couple of stories, even even that list of words, the imminent, you know, what do you mean when you even talk about those things from a concrete perspective, these stories that you've accumulated throughout the years of research? Yeah. Well, I have lots of examples in the book of how people um, imbue, and I, I mean that word imbue, in other words, they take qualities that are often attributed to the divine, and they imbue other aspects of life with those qualities. So um, if you when you get married, and if it's a, particularly some kind of religious ceremony, the marriage is imbued with sacred status. God is brought into that wedding ceremony where the whoever is officiating at the wedding often talks about God's presence in that marriage. God becomes a part of the marriage. Some people talk about it as a threefold cord, that there's husband, wife, and there's God in the marriage. Parenting can also be seen as something that's sacred in nature, that the parent's relationship with the child, that there's something cosmic, something divine in the parent's relationship with the child. 
Um, nature can be perceived as containing something of transcendence and something that's a, a kind of a purveyor of ultimate truth. I give the example of going to the Grand Canyon for the first time with my young son and how when I saw it, I was just overwhelmed with awe and the, just the sense that there's something much larger and deeper and ultimate in life than our immediate experience that beneath our very feet, there, there's a, a canyon. And right now the canyons may be covered up and but the Grand Canyon, you see what's actually beneath our feet and that there's a deeper dimension in life. So nature, the awe that we feel when we, when we see the mountains or the ocean or these incredible majestic um, geological features in the world, those are, those are conduits to, to God or to the sacred because they contain these qualities that are, are these powerful qualities. So they're more than ordinary experiences. They become extraordinary. So, at some point in the book, you 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 I just connected a bridge to Spinoza and and Spinoza's. I had a somebody I spoke with about you know this tendency of the human being to reify something and you know what makes what what's the difference between something I consider to be special and something somebody considers to be God you know imminent. You know, why isn't um, my my sense of awe when I see the Grand Canyon, why isn't it uh, because I don't see that kind of stuff very often? How do you answer that that critic? Well, it depends on how it's perceived. You can see the Grand Canyon and one person may say, oh, that's cool. And then just <laughs> go on. And for them, the Grand Canyon does not contain anything sacred. It's just kind of interesting where it may be on the cool scale a two on the 10 point cool scale and another person goes to the grand canyon and they're overwhelmed by it and takes their breath away and and it makes them start to think about the deeper dimension of life and it makes them think of how small they are that we're all specks in this larger grander universe and there's something that takes us beyond ourselves that we need to be sensitive to so whether you see the deeper dimension part depends on what we bring to it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think many people in our culture today uh, have kind of lost some of that capacity to see um, the, the deeper dimension or the spiritual dimension in life. Um, but when you do, it can be transformational. Well, that's interesting. So the, the thing you're saying there is that it's, it's almost like the residue. So the initial experience is we have that feeling tone of awe or we're mesmerized. But there, my understanding of what you said is that when we carry it with us, so the, t the two things, I guess, when there's a residue left and we kind of carry that with us, but we also create metaphors. And so we come back to it, so to speak. Would you include that? That's kind of part of the essence of what you're saying, right? That that it, it's just not one of those things that you look at and go, oh, okay, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> yeah. If if it's become sacred to us, then it tends to stay with us. It tends to become part of a, a resource in our lives that we remember and we recall and we draw on in difficult times. The, the sacred, like God, I mean, in the way we're using it here, nature can 
you know, nature can become, we, we recall that time we were on the ocean or we recall the time we, um, you know, took a walk in the woods and you, and you saw some, you know, some remarkable, beautiful scene. We carry it with us as a resource. It's part of what makes life meaningful and why you may feel glad to be alive. So, yeah, what we hold sacred tends to be something that is really of, of the deepest value and it's a tremendous resource for us in, in life. Okay, so I think, I think that takes us into that biopsychosocial spiritual piece. And I, I want to connect back to something you said about behaviorism. My, uh, my pigeon was a rat. And, uh, <laughs> and, <that's, laughs> and I always feel bad that I forgot my rat's name. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I, there's, a, there's a place for that. I learned a lot by, by training the rat. It spent months to train this rat to pull a lever. And, you know, we understand what I would consider pretty basic components of psychology and, you know, behavior. Uh, so could we kind of expand that? Because the, the two things I want to map together is both the biopsychosocial spiritual model and also how that manifests in the different kind of philosophical and psychological perspectives, whether it's Skinner or Adler or Freud or Jung, how you see those um aspects of uh, reality show up in the different psychological approaches of each theorist. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, it, of course, it would vary from theorist to theory, theorist. Uh, the, the spiritual dimension is largely un, unarticulated or, and poorly integrated into most uh, traditional psychological theories. Um, when it is, it may be seen as something that's um, oh, defensive in nature, problematic, a sign of uh, weak psyche, uh, rather than a fundamental dimension of who we are as beings. So that's been part of the bias in the field for many years. When the field, well, William James was a firm believer that the psychology truly is the study of the soul. Psyche Logos is the study of the soul. Um, and for him, religion was one of the most important central constructs that psychologists should be studying. But the psychology moved from uh, that kind of mid or late 19th century perspective into the 20th century. And the psychology tried to establish itself as a hard science Aligning itself with medicine and physics and chemistry and all the hard sciences, it really tried to do what it could to avoid any association with religion, magic, um, those kinds of soft um, types of phenomena. And so you see real efforts in the 20th century of psychologists to disconnect itself from anything having to do with religion. And that shows up in, in, you know, the writings of Freud, it shows up in the work of Skinner, it shows up in Albert Ellis, his earlier works where, you know, they're pretty uh, derisive of religious involvement. Yeah, I, I think that the two things, the first was the, the defense. It, it's almost taken as this um, kind of, it, it's a symptom of ignorance. Uh, my, my take on it from 
from that lens is that religion is looked to as a symptom of ignorance. And at the time Freud was writing about it, likely because of um, lacking in access to education, kind of primitive is the term that um, that comes up a lot. So it, yeah. it does become that folk kind of psychology, you know, it's, it's folky and we, we need to evolve out of it, which I think we're seeing a lot of today, certainly in the study of consciousness, that we, we need to evolve out of that kind of religious framework because it's, you know, the human being is just this religion is a stage of our development that needs to be set aside. And you take a different approach, though. You're actually looking at it from a research-based perspective that says that there are ways that there are very important ways that a religious orientation helps us. And that's, that sounds weird. How would you say that? How would you say that it, it supports us through our difficulties or what, what are you getting at? Well, I'd say it's even more basic than that. I'd say that we come into the world with a kind of spiritual propensity that we seek something larger than ourselves in life. Um, and it's kind of hardwired into us from the very beginning. We look for something larger than ourselves. And um, yeah, I mean, we're also psychological, social, physical beings and meeting those needs is certainly tremendously important, but it's probably not sufficient for many people to feel like they're living a whole full life um, to simply meet your, those needs. Is, and Maslow was one of the first psychologists who really kind of recognized that when he talked about his hierarchy. I'm not sure I buy the notion of a kind of developmental hierarchy or stage-like hierarchy that you move from one lower to higher, but I think certainly he included the transcendent dimension uh, and recognized there is a motivation for seeking out something larger than ourselves that needs to be uh, um, recognized and integrated integrated into psychological theories. Um, but, but I think part of the reason why the psychology of religion and the field itself has, has started to take some different forms, including interest nowadays in meditation, um, interest in uh, acceptance commitment therapies. These are, these are therapies and approaches now that I think are, um, they have strong spiritual uh, linkages, even though they're often not made explicit. Mm -hmm. They do resonate with spiritual approaches. And um, I think they, they grow out of the sense of the insufficiency of, you know, acceptance commitment therapy, for instance, is seen as kind of like a third wave of cognitive uh, of behavioral therapy, from behavior therapy to cognitive behavioral to acceptance commitment therapy, as ways of um, broadening and deepening our approaches to, to treatment that are give more recognition of the kind of spiritual-like dimension of who we are. And the same thing with meditation, meditation of recognizing that not all problems can be solved with a, a direct hit, hit it over the head kind of approach of, all right, let's just do a problem solving approach and fix it, which is the American kind of control oriented, mastery oriented approach to problems. Meditation says there are times when you have to learn how to just sit with things, accept things, let go of some of the, the, uh, the mastery oriented, control oriented feelings and behaviors that define us so much in our culture today. So it's a recognition that, that in some ways our, our materialistic biopsychosocial approach 
is insufficient. Not that they're not important. It's just that's not sufficient to make a whole person. So just I'm I'm sensitive to anybody listening. When we talk about kind of that lineage of behavioral therapy, behaviorism is the one to one correspondence. You know, this stop doing that, you know, (laughs) Pavlovian training and classical behaviorism, Skinner and, and, um, and the like. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is the modality that says, well, we need to shift our relationship to these various ways of being. And it brought us this uh, wonderful things like cognitive distortions and kind of, and then the third wave behavioral therapy, which I put in ACT, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy that really begins to incorporate metaphor and mindfulness and meditation. And and, and there's a skills component to, to DBT, for example. Uh, ACT, ACT is full of metaphor, and it allows for, uh, the metaphor I'd like to use there is something to flower. You really plant seeds for people, and it kind of the, the, the change happens from within, so it's not so direct. Uh, would you, is there anything you want to add to that? Because I just want to fill that in for anybody listening that doesn't really know that language. Well, um, the thing I would add is just the, the notion of the, the spiritual dimension to it. And again, I would stress that psychology and medicine are very control mastery oriented approaches to the human condition and problems that in psychology and medicine too, you define the problem, then you come up, you define it, you assess it, you diagnose it, and then you come up with a, a, a treatment plan for eliminating it or eradicating the problems. Um, and from a spiritual point of view, it, spirituality recognizes that that's certainly a value, but there are also aspects of who we are that are also need to be taken into account. And the reality being that we're all limited, frail, finite creatures. Mm-hmm. And we face problems that may have limits to their controllability. We can't control everything. And we can't extend our lives to the point that we're going to live forever. And we face problems that are always have some aspect of the uncontrollable. So part of the art of living involves not only trying to um, take control of what we can, but also find ways to come to terms with the limits of our control, come to terms with our own finitude and frailty. And that's where I think psychology historically hasn't really focused on that. But now we're starting to see some shifts in that direction. Um, And that's where religion and spirituality, I think, have really special power resources to offer psychology. Yeah, it's almost funny to me. (laughs) It's almost funny to me that what we're doing today is is we're using all of our gadgets and gizmos and technology and we're we're going oh yeah by the way those people that used to go into those caves and sit silently for a long time they kind of <laughs> had something right <laughs> right no exactly well and and you know other resources in in religious traditions i mean the whole you know now we're seeing the the power of some of the virtues that have been that traditionally were ignored in psychology, uh, forgiveness and gratitude, even love, they're starting to make their way into the psychological uh, arena. And uh, they can be quantified and measured and they can be integrated into treatment. And when they are, the findings, I mean, I know my own clinical work, they've really added a lot to be able to talk to 
for instance, when I see couples and to, to see that just talking, helping them communicate about their grievances is only helpful to a, a relatively low degree for yeah. many couples who are collecting grudges and grievances, um, just sharing them more clearly isn't sufficient. They need to be able to somehow find ways to let go and to shift from the blame mode to more of a mode of letting go of the anger and animosity and seeing if they can really inject more love, compassion, forgiveness into their relationship. That's, that's, that can, that's transformational for many couples. And tough sometimes really tough. Well, I think it's, 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 I found that it's actually easier than continuing trying to just facilitate communication among couples who are collecting grievances because that gets nowhere and it just gets people angrier and angrier. And you know, there's no resolution to it. Most people in relationships have reason to feel hurt and angry at what their, how their partners have treated them. We've all been, we've all been recipients of that and we've given it out too. So at some point enough's enough. At some point it may be important to say, okay, yeah, you guys have hurt each other. So how do you move on from here? And how do you, uh, how do you make that a religious endeavor? Well, I don't think you have to make it explicitly religious. For some couples who are religious, you can link it back to their their faith tradition. But for other couples, you know, some of these concepts, these virtues, uh, forgiveness, gratitude, love, they're really psycho-spiritual in nature. They, they're both, they have one foot in the psychological world and one foot in the spiritual world. They have this they tend to be imbued with a deeper meaning and power. So when I work with a couple that's been fighting a lot, and if I look at them and I say, why are you guys together? And they, they stop for a second. Then one or the other might say, well, because we love each other. I'll say, you could have fooled me. What do you mean by love? And all of a sudden we're into a conversation about love that often has spiritual meaning and significance without necessarily drawing it out explicitly. I, I read that. I've read that note, uh, that section of your book several times. I, I really appreciate that. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. Thank you. Well, the, what, and I kind of, now that we're talking, I, I'd like to go off book for a second because I, um, while you bring couples into the equation, I, I think attachment, that's an appropriate time to jump a little bit into attachment. And attachment as it relates to, and, and let me define that a little bit better, both early development, how a child attaches or doesn't to the parent in the family of origin, how that may or may not influence the, their religious, their capacity for a religious life. Would you speak a bit about that for a while? Well, it's, it's uh, I think, really very, it's fascinating to try to understand how people's understand, concepts of the divine do evolve. And certainly the, the relationship that you have with key figures growing up seems to have important implications for how you understand God. Um, there's good research that suggests that, you know, people who have secure attachments to the parents tend to have a secure attachment to God. And people who have less secure attachments to their parents, be they avoidant or anxious mm -hmm. relationships with their parents, they may have the exact same kind of relationship with God. 
Um, so there seems to be a connection there too. We tend to project our parents onto God. Um, on the other hand, for some people, the God becomes a source of compensation for the parents. And so you have some people whose God was, whose parents were um, difficult to them and critical and couldn't connect to their parents. And then they find God maybe a little later in life and God provides the support and the solace and the guidance that they didn't find in their family. So for some people, the God may really map onto their understanding of their parents, but for other people, God is, becomes the good parent, the caring parent, the loving parent that they never had. But that, you know, there are other factors that shape the people's understandings of the divine. It's not just parents. They're, we're socialized to think about God in certain ways. So Christians think about God in a different way than uh, Muslims or Hindus. Uh, Buddhists think about uh, God in very different ways than uh, people from other traditions, many other traditions. So there's social forces at play. And, uh, you know, for some people, it's about revelation. It's about experiences where the God you come to know is a God who came to you. So you, God may have come to you in nature or through music. Mm -hmm. And God then starts to look very different than, the, the, uh, you know, the God of the Bible or of the religious tradition. Well, yeah, it seems, well, I, I... I kind of have two directions there. The first is to address the attachment piece, which is when we talk about secure attachment, we're talking about the the child or the infant learned over uh, you know these repetitions of when they have some kind of need that their need is met by the environment, and that helps them feel a sense of safety. And that the caregiver then is the uh, an, an individual that can soothe that child whenever they're feeling distressed, and when we have that over and over and over again, the the child establishes a, a a sense of the world that is safe, and then as you said, avoidant and and uh, avoidant and ambivalent, you know, the ambivalent one is there was an inconsistency, the avoidant one is there was just not really anybody who met the emotional needs of the child. And so, so when those systems, for lack of a better term, are disrupted, for example, in the avoidant and the ambivalent, we can find ways to map those anxieties or those defenses onto the experience of the divine. And so I, that's, that's one thing that I want to be able to define for anybody who's... Um, who's listening, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Is there? Well, in terms of uh, therapy, the, there's an important implication that in, in therapy, um, the therapist can kind of become a quasi godlike figure too. And that the therapist can be someone who becomes a trusted figure, an authority figure, someone who's supportive, someone who can be counted on to help facilitate the well-being of the client and it's interesting and I, i've had cases like this and many other people have reported it that in through the process of establishing a strong therapeutic connection that can lead to changes in people spiritually so clients who may have had questions and doubts and whatever feelings about god through the therapeutic relationship may be able to kind of revisit that and start to 
reestablish a, a kind of trusting relationship with whatever they hold sacred. So the therapeutic relationship can not only facilitate social relationships of clients and clients' ability to be more trusting in their family and friends and work, but also spiritually as well. I remember I saw a client who had a very difficult uh, childhood with her parents who were a mixture of abusive and neglectful. And so, you know, in attachment terms, she was really quite ambivalent about relationships. She would seek them, but they were never sufficient and they could never make up for what she lost as a child. Um, and she was coming in to see me because she was, um, one of her problems was she was having a terrible time with her pastor. And when we talked about what was going on with her pastor, she was angry with her pastor because there were times she would call him up and he would be busy talking to someone else. And that would infuriate her. She would say, he should be there for me no matter what. He's supposed to be a pastor. He's supposed to be a representative of God. And, but when sometimes I feel like I'm a second-class citizen with him. And, you know, over time, what became clear was that she was looking to her pastor as God uh, to replace the kind of secure, God-like relationship she wished she had gotten from her parents. And she had more right to expect consistent parenting and parents who would be there for her consistently. But even a pastor, you know, as committed as a pastor can be, there's no pastor who can be God. And there's no pastor who can devote 24-7 to any particular member of a congregation. So part of the treatment for her was to help her understand what she was looking for from people. And could she kind of make the distinction between what she was looking to obtain through people and what she might need through some understanding of, of a transcendent God? Do, so keep keep going there. Do you think that with that particular dynamic... How does somebody then treat that themselves, right? Because you can do your best to point that out to somebody, but then then comes the difficult part, which is actually f recognizing and feeling that. So what happens next in the work? Well, for some people, it may be tough to do it by yourself because so much of uh, what is spiritual in nature is not really fully understood or articulated because this is... This is work that few of us really think about a whole lot. And uh, it just remains much more in the background, implicit or even unconscious than something that people understand on the surface. We're not particularly well educated spiritually or learn how to reflect on ourselves spiritually for that matter. This, this isn't, where do you learn about this kind of stuff? So, you know, a lot of us are left without the tools to work forward and deal with these issues and that that's challenging on, on top of that i mean we've been talking about people's understandings of god in, in really a very simple way you know is it a secure relationship or insecure but the reality i think is is that and i talk about it in the book is that our understandings of of the god of god or the divine they're really multi-layered that we learn lots of different things about god and they're they were like onions and we have different layers, and one layer may say that God is there who's and guarantees that nothing bad will ever happen to us. And another layer tells us, well, wait a minute, God's going to punish us if we do something wrong. And another layer may be, well, I wonder if there even is a God, because so many bad things do happen in the world. 
And another layer may say, you know, I mean, the layers, and they're not, it's not as if one layer replaces another layer. So we can be believers and disbelievers and hold different images of God at the same time. So it gets, uh, and to, to me, and, and this is what I, I, I talk a lot about the importance of being integrated in the book yeah. of what, what makes for health and well-being isn't one particular trait or characteristic. It's how do you put the, the kind of bits and pieces of your life together into some kind of coherent whole, which recognizes that we're, nobody's ever fully whole. We all have our, you know, we all have our wounds. We all are broken in some ways and scarred in some ways, but we can still make something whole and meaningful of the bits and pieces of who we are. We can create something, a work of art out of bits and pieces, a mosaic in our lives that, that really becomes beautiful. So you wrote the book in 2007. Yeah. And, it's, and I, I think we can jump kind of into the researchy piece. Uh, so what what was going on, maybe even before that, right? When you started reaching, researching religion, what was happening that you were seeing and how has it evolved from then to now in, in the larger population? When you say what was happening, do you mean in, in the world or do you mean in the research world? What are you referring to? Yeah, both. I think what, what kind of trends were you seeing? And I guess what, to be more specific with my question, I think I'm, I'm trying to get at what have you seen change both in the questions that you've been asking throughout your experience and also in the answers that you've been getting? Yeah. Well, when I was started to do this research and it was the 1970s, so quite a long time ago, um, a lot of the research that was done on religion was research done at a distance. So it almost as if the researchers were a little bit wary about getting too close to religious experience. So a lot of the research focused on very basic kinds of indicators of religious life. How often do you go to church? Right. Are you religious? What is your denomination? And, you know, those basic kinds of questions were sometimes associated with health and well-being. But when I talk to people about religion, it, it, I really tried to meet with people like you and talk to people and find out, what is it about going to church that makes a difference or doesn't make a difference? What is it about prayer that's relevant? How is religion expressed in your life for better or worse? And then that calls for getting closer to religious experience. And that's what led me to doing research on religious coping, because what I found most powerful in my conversations with people was the way they described their experience of religion when they were facing a major illness, a death in the family, um, illness, accident, or injury, uh, being victimized in a crime, uh, a natural disaster. And if you ask them, well, how was your faith involved? They could talk about it and they could become actually concrete and talk about the specific ways their faith was helpful and in some instances harmful to them as they went through major crises. So that to me, you know, being empirically oriented, I really found that useful because I had something to sink my teeth into. And that led to me developing measures of religious coping, which turned out to be pretty good predictors of health and well-being. Our cope. Right. 
let's talk about that. Tell, um, would you explain what you uh, what you discovered? Well, again, working with our our people in in the trenches of the crises in their lives, we developed a measure of religious coping methods. So the concrete ways religion expresses itself in difficult times. And so we came up with measures or items that tap into the degree to which people seek out support from God, the degree to which people reframe a negative event from a, a spiritual perspective so that the negative event becomes an opportunity to grow spiritually or a chance to get to know God. Um, we had items that tap into the degree which people feel a sense of forgiveness from God for any transgression they may have um, committed. We have items, you know, so items people feel they seek out transformation in their lives because the crisis reveals that their lives are purposeless and meaningless and they, they want something more. So these are concrete ways people experience religion in their lives in difficult times. And um, overall, we found that you, we could delineate two types of religious coping. One we called positive religious coping, which involves those elements of seeking support from God, seeking support from a congregation or church, um, positively reframing a negative event in a larger spiritual perspective. And those dimensions we called positive religious coping. But we also came across another dimension of what we initially called negative religious coping, which we now call religious or spiritual struggles. And that dimension reflects experiences of tension or conflict or strain around religion that people encounter in difficult times in their lives. So feeling punished by God, feeling abandoned by the divine, feeling a sense of moral struggle that you're not living up to your, your spiritual values, um, interpersonal religious conflict. So having conflicts with members of your religious community, um, religious doubts and questions that really cause you a lot of distress. These also are, uh, they come together to create this other dimension of negative religious coping or religious and spiritual struggles. Can and both are relevant. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I want to. It seems to me like a lot of those communities you're talking about are existing in inside of an institutionalized religious structure. And so, what about? Because for somebody to articulate like I'm feeling abandoned by God, you know, I think somebody also may say I feel like life is meaningless. You know that. Yeah. What What's the language that people use who don't have a particular religious orientation? Well, we came up with, uh, we identified um, coping methods that are both traditionally religious and non-traditionally religious or spiritual. So some of the dimensions that, so and some of the items or questions would be relevant to both people in an institutional framework and, and who are not part of a religious institution. Um, but many of the ones we have are, in fact, institutionally tied. Right now, we're doing a lot of work on, and uh, my next book that I'm doing with Julie Exline is on the religious and spiritual struggles. And the struggles that we've measured and articulated are both, some of them are uh, God-based, but others aren't. Some are, others are, uh, don't have any explicit reference to God 
or our congregation, for instance, um, interpersonal spiritual struggles are struggles with other people about sacred matters. And we've been doing some research that shows that atheists can have a lot of interpersonal spiritual struggles. They can struggle with people who are religious. And so it becomes a, a source of problem in their life, the conflicts they have with religious people. This is very important. Even though they're atheists, they still experience this spiritual conflict. Um, and then we have other struggles that also are uh, may not be, uh, that can be experienced by atheists or other people who aren't part of a religious community. We have ultimate meaning struggles, which are struggles about the, your ultimate purpose in life, whether you have a deeper ultimate purpose in life. For many people, that's very connected to their understanding of God, their understanding of ultimate truth, but not everyone. For other people that, you know, atheists can also have struggles that are deep-seated like that about why am I here? What's my purpose in life? And I would still call them spiritual in nature because they tap into the deepest dimensions. So, yeah, we've tried to come up with measures that are sensitive to both traditional theists and non-theists, people who are involved in religious institutions and those who aren't. I would say there is a kind of emphasis, though, on the theistic institutionally based forms of coping in, in the way we've developed it. Specifically, can you talk about deferring and self-directing and collaborative? Yeah, that's some of the earlier work we did where we were really looking at how do people find a sense of control uh, in their relationship with something sacred or divine. And we know that for many people, um, critical life events raise questions about control. Had, who's in control? How do I master the situation? And, and we identified three types of control with implications for religion or spirituality. Um, one is we call deferring. And in deferring, uh, the approach is basically saying, I'm giving it over to God. God, you take care of the problem for me. That's the kind of traditional religious approach that Freud criticized and that many psychologists criticize as religious passivity and defensiveness. A second kind of religious uh, of, of control-oriented coping was called self-directing. And this is kind of more the American way of, of you handle the problem yourself. You do it by yourself, the John Wayne approach, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know. <laughs> but we identified a third approach that uh, was actually the most common of all of them. And it's collaborative, which is that you work together with God sharing control. In other words, God is your partner when you run into trouble. So you do your part and God does his or her part but you work together and the responsibility for control is shared. So it's a relationship. And for most people, they see God relationally. Um, and so God is kind of a partner they work together with to solve problems. That was the most common kind of uh, control-oriented coping. And, it, it, and that's associated with better mental health. So how does, does, I guess it's a simple question. Do you find that people who have this kind of religious orientation fare better with their mental health? Yeah. Um, in general, people who are more collaborative are uh, experience a lot of mental health benefits. And, and you think about it, they've got a kind of supportive 
relationship. God has their back, but they're also involved in doing what they need to do to deal with problems. So they're not passive, but they've got a supportive figure in their lives. And so that, that seems to be uh, kind of a win-win for them. Um, but it gets, it gets even more complicated, though, because we also <laughs> find that there are times and situations where deferring makes a lot of sense. When if you're truly facing an uncontrollable problem like a terminal illness or a situation that can't be changed, to take a self-directing approach, it's like beating your head against the wall. And sometimes it just makes sense to kind of gracefully let things go. And, and this is the surrender, uh, the give it up to God kind of allow. Yeah, like a, like a surrender to God, and you're surrendering to a benevolent force, not a malevolent force. And people can find that helpful too in the right time and place. On the other hand, to defer when you really do need to take action. So to give up that kind of control. Let's say you have a, a tumor in your breast, and you say, well, whether I have a tumor and whether it's cancer or not is God's will. So I'll just trust in God and you don't seek out a doctor. Well, that deferral can cost you your life. So part of the, the challenge in the religious coping work and in, in life is to be discerning, like the 12 step uh, serenity prayer, knowing when to do what, being discerning in your use of your faith in your life and how to, how do you, again, it goes back to, well, how do you put the pieces together and live a whole life? You have to be able to be, discerning and wise in, in, in all of this. And to look for just simple answers that apply to all situations is, I think, uh, in the spiritual realm, is as problematic as looking for simple answers in any aspect of life. We need lots of ways to think about things. We need lots of tools in the toolbox and then the wisdom to know, you know how to put it all together. There, there are a lot of people are saying, look, this whole religious thing is unnecessary. We can, we can do all those things. I can say, I, I surrender. I don't have to surrender it up to God, or I don't have to give it up to God. What do you say to that? Well, it's true. You can surrender, but what empirically, again, what we find is that people who are able to surrender with the idea that there is a benevolent force to surrendering to have some real advantages to someone who may say, I just give up, you know, I'm, you know, it is what it is. I give up. I've done what I can. I'm done. That can, that can be more, you can be more vulnerable than to fatalism, to a sense of uh, meaninglessness, a sense of purposelessness and a sense of hopelessness. So we do find that people who, are able to surrender to God or to defer to God, at least in some instances, there's some advantages of that. Could uh, I, th I think that's a, a couple of things I want to define. I'm really curious how you would. Could, could you define God and could you define spirituality? Um, boy, I can't define God. You need to, <laughs> that's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I can define spirituality. Spirituality well, I mean, to me, yeah. Uh, sorry, let me just, um, from a research perspective, how, do, do you kind of let that, let the participant define God? Or what if, you know, what if they're Hindu? Or what if they're a, 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 not a monotheistic tradition? What if they're in a different kind of tradition? 
Yeah. Well, in, researchers generally uh, uh, either use the word God. Well, typically what I do, for instance, but other researchers do this too. We have measures to assess people's feelings about God, closeness with God, attitudes to God, beliefs in God. Um, and then in the introduction to the measure, we'll say we're using the word God, but please feel free to substitute whatever language you find most appropriate that works for you in talking about God or in talking about gods. So for people who are polytheists, they can also include that as well. Right. Um, it, you know, it's oversimplification. We've done some research that shows that people's understandings among Christians, people may, for some people, they uh, merge their understanding of God and Jesus. They, pre, they talk about God and Jesus as, as kind of like one being. Other people, though, see God and Jesus as different beings, and they have, diff they have different um, ways of experiencing and relating to and different feelings about God and Jesus. So you know, in the, our field, the research field in this area, is still just getting off the ground. We're very, I think, in a very early stage of development um, and there's a lot more work that we need to be doing. And your whole, your question about how do we define God? How do we measure God is really important. We just haven't done a whole lot with it yet. Could you define spirituality? I want to circle back to that. Um, yeah. Uh, spirituality I've defined as a search for the sacred. And by, I've already talked a little bit about the sacred, including God and then other aspects of life, but search in, is a process and it's a process of, uh, forming or discovering a relationship with something sacred once that's developed or discovered then it's a process of holding on to or maintaining or conserving a relationship with what you hold sacred and then at times it's a process of transforming your relationship with god or the sacred so that you know your old understandings of god may no longer work for you as you mature or change or have new experiences and so you experience a transformation of your understanding but basically, the search for the sacred, it's, it's all about a relationship with the sacred. It's about forming, maintaining, and transforming a relationship with whatever you hold sacred in life. It's a process that develops over the lifespan. Gosh, I had a... a I, I always I like talking to people about what they consider to be sacred. That That's a... That's such an important conversation, and I think it opens up so much about a person's orientation to their reality, to their lived experience. And that yeah. tends to be what I'm going after. I'm trying to help articulate and bring to the surface some fundamental assumptions about reality and how that may hinder or, I, I don't know, I, I kind of access a poetic language at that point where I want things to be fluid and, and flow as opposed to be static and stale. Yeah. Uh, I like, I like, yeah, well, that, that's what I like about this approach to spirituality as a process. I mean, to me, that's very real that as opposed to saying it refers to a set of beliefs that's fixed and final, you know, people's spirituality, like any other dimension of life, it, it changes over life through life's ups and downs, our ways we think about the sacred and how we relate to the sacred. We have our phases and we have our ups and downs. And, you know, we have our, our different time periods of what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we can jump into a, would you speak a bit about a reactive 
view of human nature. You, you spoke a bit about that, or you wrote a bit about that in the book, and I enjoyed that part yeah. of your... Well, it, it's another um, kind of comment I've made about the field, that, that much of the psychology is reactive in nature, that you know, we see ourselves as shaped by biology. You know, we talk about being shaped by our genes, and now we can map the human genome and look at that as a predictor of all kinds of things that are going to unfold in our life. We see early development as the predictor of later life. Freud said personality was formed by the age of five. Um, and then we have our environmentalists are also saying that we're shaped by our environment, that we're products of our environment. So, you know, products of biology, we're products of early developmental experiences, we're products of the environment. They're all basically reactive. Uh, they have a reactive, underlying reactive view of human nature. And I'd say there's something true about that. Certainly are in part reactive beings, but uh, we're, I think more importantly, we're proactive seekers. We seek things in life and we're drawn forward by our visions, our goals, whatever we hold to be significant in life. And I say we're drawn to significance or something of meaning and that lures us forward. And it's to, it, to me, it's such a critical idea because it's an optimistic, hopeful idea that we have, we're proactive, which means we don't have to just spend our lives reacting to what comes our way. We can seek things out and to make plans and pursue lives of meaning and worth. We have goals and values and therapeutically, that's critical because a lot of people come in and they need help becoming more proactive. Part of the problem they're experiencing is they are reactive and they haven't thought about, well, what do you want to do with your life? How do you want to make the most of your time? And how do you shift from feeling so much control from your family to living life more in your own terms? And so it's it, it, the notion of helping people define what's significant to them and pursue it and realize more of it to me is, is an underlying value for psychotherapy. Yeah. Th this gets into an interesting almost theoretical question which is difficult when we're in a culture that's so medicalized and reductive that our developmental history is not in the past it, it it's kind of informing and it's imagistic you know those and that gets that gets into a weird I don't know. I sometimes get confused about that because we are so oriented to looking at our development as if it's something in our past that happened in and we're a product of our development as opposed to something kind of moving us along. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to use the word path, but I can't find another word there. Uh, moving us along a path to, I don't know, incarnate something, some unique part of ourselves that I think yeah. is is what is um, I would use the term divinity there, but that gets confusing for a lot of people. Well, in in the book, and I've talked about this elsewhere too. It, it is important to take a history, but it's just as important to take a future. Um, <laughs> I like that. And That's right. you know, we spend a lot of time taking a history, but as important is to ask people about okay, where do you want to be five years from now? Where do you envision yourself 10 years from now? Who do you want to be? 
you know, and what directions do you want to go to? And people need a vision, need a destination. And oftentimes that vision and destination is spiritually informed. It's tied to their understanding of God. It's tied to their higher values. Most people don't say, well, I want to continue to focus my life on just making as much money as I can. And, um, you know, in stepping on people along the way to do that, most people, when they think about who do they want to be in five years, well, will think about kind of higher values and uh, how can they live life more on the terms that they, 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 that are of most importance to them. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right that there's a, that's a, a key, a key shift that needs to take place that as important as your developmental history is, um, it's also important to recognize that we're not, we're not um, imprisoned by it and that we can choose to shift out of it and not, you know, I mean, I often see clients who've had histories of terrible abuse or trauma. And, you know, they'll say, and many of them will just say, I feel like my life's been shattered and there's no hope for me. Yeah. And that's the reactive view, that you're just a product of your environment. And, uh, or, you know, my parents abused me, their parents abused them. Am I going to abuse my own children? And the answer is no, not necessarily. You have some power, you have some control, you have a future you can envision. You can take steps to avoid mistakes that your parents and your grandparents made. There's no reason why this is preordained. You can you can move forward in a new direction, depending on how you envision your life. That's very hopeful to people. It's, people leave just tremendously relieved when they hear that. You You said one of your quotes that really stood out to me from the book was that it was about um, I'm, I'm not going to access. It was about looking at past behavior to be able to predict future behavior. And what you were talking about is looking at somebody's intentions. Right. We've got a, a kind of a confused relationship with intentions. And I, I just, I really appreciate you saying that because I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to say that that gets us into that more imaginal realm, which is that kind of interior, like, what do you, what do you wish? What do you want? What's an image that's attached to this and what's kind of urging you forward and what's holding you back. And that's the unfolding process that I really like that we're not so stuck in, you know, what happened before and uh, we're, we are connecting with those really rich things like hope and possibility and potential. And it's mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like the way you put it. So, so, uh, could you talk uh, as we're moving along here, could you talk an, again about the discovering of the sacred or the discovery of the sacred, those three components of discovery, conservation and transformation? Well, there are three processes that help describe the kind of journey of spirituality. And again, I do think a spirituality is uh, the metaphor I can use would be a journey or a stream. Okay. It's something that unfolds over the lifespan. But the, the processes that define it are discovering something, holding on to something and transforming something. And you do it more than once. I mean, you can discover something and then uh, let it go and, you know, put it to the side. And then later in life, you rediscover something. So they're, they're just useful ways of trying to describe what people go through. For some people, discovery is like an epiphany. They find God, God comes to them, like hits them over the head with a, a confrontation. 
Um, and other people, they just gradually get to know God through their own spiritual exploration, their reading, their conversations with people. Some people just accept the way God has been described to them through their readings in Sunday school or their parents taught them or just religious education. Um, and then the, the challenge shifts to, well, once you've discovered something about God, how do you nurture that or develop it? How does it, how do you hold on to it? Um, and then with that, at, at times you find that it may not be sufficient. It's inadequate, you may experience a spiritual struggle. And you realize, gosh, I was thinking about God as Santa Claus, for instance. I thought God would never let anything bad happen to me. And then something bad happens to you and you realize Either I'm going to reject this God completely or I need to think about God in a new way. And so you make a shift. And you develop a different perspective. That, and once you do that, then you have to continue to hold on to it. So it's, you know, the beat goes on. It's a process that occurs over the lifespan. One thing that I like, uh, I, I've, I think Jung wrote a lot about this, saying that um, he, he's really talking about the God image. And he, he was careful not to say I'm not I'm or to say I'm not a theologian. I'm not talking about the transcendent. I'm talking about the ways in which we experience the transcendent and what kind of image yeah. of God that you have. And I I think sometimes we really need to crack open our image of the divine and let it let it set it free a bit. You know, not I I. I in the kind of intellectual community, I meet a lot of people who have a their orientation or their understanding of God is, uh, as atheists, is a very fundamentalist understanding of God. And so when you when you ask somebody like, well, what what is your image of God? Because they're saying, oh, this is this is so foolish. You know, people that believe in you know, that uh, guy with a, with a beard floating on a cloud. And then you got somebody who's like, oh, I, you know, that's not, that's not the image that I have of God. So I, I think that you said something earlier that I've, I've really been taken with, which is all the, all the layers of, of these representations of God and how at time we really need to take another look so that we can reevaluate the understanding that we have of the transcendent spiritual reality. I think it would be helpful if people shifted the language of understanding or image of God in the singular to in, in the plural. Yeah, because I agree. Most people, I think, actually carry multiple images, multiple representations, ones that they're comfortable with, ones that they can't stand, but they're still inside. And when I work with people clinically, I, we often end up discovering that they have these images of God that are totally inconsistent with their, their kind of intellectual understanding of God. And it drives them nuts. They may, you know, someone who's an atheist may feel that he or she's being punished by the God they don't believe in. But it's still, it's very real. And it, it's because we're onions, yeah. right? Or other people who may feel that God is constantly there, always present in the middle of a crisis, they feel a sense of abandonment from God. The God who's always present is no longer, is not present. And there's nothing there. There's just an emptiness. And so for a lot of people, it's not an image. It's how do you live with the multiplicity of your understanding of God and the fact that they may not cohere very well. And can you move to a more whole conception that allows for 
as much complexity and understanding God is apparent. You know, we, in therapy, when we work with people and their, their images and feelings about their parents, one of the things we do is help them come to terms with the fact that in some ways they may love their parent and they may hate their parent. Their parent may be a wonderful model, and in some ways they may feel like I never want to be like that person, at least in that respect. And can a parent be more than one thing? Well, in therapy, try to help people to accept life's richness and complexity. And I think the same can be true about God, where we, we tend to be much more, as you suggest, we tend to be much more simplified here mm -hmm. than at applying kind of a, a logic that we wouldn't apply to any other, any, anything else. We just look for such simple concepts. And God ends up becoming a small God because of that. And God becomes, we develop narrow conceptions of God, of God of one thing, and that's it. And that, that kind of God will be insufficient for dealing with the full range of human experience. I agree with that so much. I think the, 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 I don't, maybe that's polytheistic. Maybe it's just the using a term that multiplicity, but it certainly does make sense. I think King Arthur's round table makes a hell of a lot of sense to me as a, an idea of, Kind of what's going on in the world when it comes to to the divine. Yeah, I like I like the idea of all those all those figures sitting at a table having conversations and arguments and getting pissed at each other and you know there's <laughs> there's there's the lover who fights with the the angry one who fights with the what you know that that makes more sense to me about what not only what's going on in in my interior experience, but it's certainly what's going on out there in nature, which is a, they're a reflection of each other. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think in, in religious traditions are often much more, um, are much richer and more complex and appreciate these understandings of God than we give them credit for. I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, what, what, there's a book now out on, uh, what is it? I think it's called Who is God? But what it does is it details kind of like the evolution of God in the hmm. Hebrew Bible from a God who's intimately involved with creation and conversations with people like a person who's, a, who's deeply engaged in a kind of almost face-to-face -face way with people early in the Hebrew Bible, but towards the latter part of the Hebrew Bible, God is beginning to recede and is more distant and isn't talking to people the way God would have talked to Abraham or talked to Moses. And so we're left with a God who is both accessible and immediate and a God who is distant and removed, And our, which is true. Well, that's the wrong question. The question may be, how do you come to terms with God's, these different aspects of maybe God's nature of being able to be accessible and close and at the same time distant and removed and made aren't, aren't both possibilities, but how do you live with that kind of paradox? Maybe we get very confused. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And our heads explode. I mean, that sitting in a paradox is like, ah, I'm all anxious and ambivalent. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that's part of, uh, at least according to some theories, that's where we all have a lot of work to do in our own development of learning to appreciate, even celebrate paradox and complexity, be able to sit with it and go, boy, I don't know, but isn't it kind of cool? <laughs> I agree. 
and it you know and then when i'm that that part of me that wants to know that sits at that round table that's that's the one that gets all pissed off whenever that happens to me. <laughs> well, Ken, look, you've been so generous with your time. I, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm just really grateful to be able to have this informative and valuable conversation on a subject matter that I think is so important that needs, that needs to be brought out in the open more and more. Cause I, I, I am consistently seeing as a psychotherapist and as a person who's curious about these subjects, I'm consistently seeing how, how much, what I think based upon this thing we're talking about with the paradox, how quickly we try to resolve the paradox by going over to, to one side. And right. that, that's where we become kind of stale and, uh, and we become really bitchy and angry and yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah well i enjoyed talking with you these are great 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 conversation thank yeah. you thank you so much john i got up grabbed a cup took a look out the window never coming back again then i learned you return all the books that i lent you you never were